Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, he's been called the father of economics, but how much of what he talked about and wrote about has stood the test of time? And have we fully understood his ideas of free trade and the invisible hand? And why is a man who cared so much about the plight of the poor now seen as the poster boy for the right and those who have money to protect? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Yes, we're talking about Adam Smith, of course. He was uh, one of the characters of the Scottish Enlightenment at that time in the 18th and early 19th century when Scotland became home to a great deal of scientific and philosophical thought away from the confines of uh, of religion and wealth. Mm. It was really was free thinking. Uh, based on empirical thought and reasoning, it, uh, it was the age that saw the likes of people like James Watt and Rabbi Burns and James Hutton, the geologist. Uh, now, I'm not sure. What what does Scotland give us now, I wonder, compared to those great minds? We, I mean, we've got Gordon Ramsay and uh, <laughs> Nicholas Sturgeon and Andy. Well, Andy, you're married. And, and of course, George Galloway. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but what, going back to Adam Smith, um what did he get right and what was a bit off the mark, do you reckon? Well, I'm going to start with where he's off the mark because I'm I'm actually now writing the third edition of Debunking Economics, by the way, mm. which I started on the weekend. Um, and when I finish that, the next major task is what I'm calling a magnum opus, and I'm giving the title of that, Principles of Political Economy and Ecology. Right. Is that going to be in four volumes or something? In four volumes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah with, with a fifth, <laughs> fifth, fifth set of cartoons for the light readers. Um, that's... So I'm now thinking, how do I start that book? And I've decided I'm going to start it by calling not Adam Smith, not the father of economics, but the uncle who led it astray. Right. Because the biggest mistake that Smith made is right in the very first paragraph or two paragraphs mm. of the Wealth of Nations. And that's saying that the Wealth of Nations comes from the division of labour. And yeah. when you, what you then see is within this over, idea that yeah, because he 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 gave the example of the pin factory, yeah, didn't he? yeah, and mm. the pin factory having you know, saying one one person on their own could scarce make you know one or two pins a day, and the, but by dividing it, you make five hundred pins per person. And he saw specialisation and division of labour right. as the source of. So what's wrong? I mean, that would uh, factually that would be right, though, wouldn't it? No, um, because uh, Joan Robinson made the, the very simple point that what if one person did one job like you know drawing out the the steel first of all to make the actual pin section then making the heads the next day then combining them all together uh, it's dividing up the work uh, rather than the individual specialization right. but the main point is not that at all uh, if you actually take a look in back at a much older book by Richard Cantillon you'll find that the opening paragraph of Richard Cantillon's is almost identical to Smith's the big difference is that Cantillon says the source of her wealth is the free gift of nature, right. agriculture, mm. as he, he saw it at the time. But basically, we get this: you plant one seed, you get 10,000 seeds back. There's a free gift going on. That's what pays the wages of the, the worker, the, the farm worker, and it creates the profit, which is a free gift 
to the proprietor of the land. And looking in terms of the energy analysis that I'm now um, developing further, that's right. That's correct because you you uh, the, the source of all wealth is the free gift of nature. Okay. We wouldn't be here were it not for the sun. We wouldn't have industry except for stored solar energy called coal or oil. Uh, all these sorts of things are ta- exploiting an existing resource and turning it, using the energy from that resource to do useful work. So it's fundamentally not. It wasn't the specialisation of labour. It was creating machines that could harness the fossil fuel that we mm. didn't even realise was fossil fuel at the time. But is when he, I think the point he was trying to make, though, when he was talking about that division of labour mm. was that we all have to work together, which sort of fitted his sort of philosophical approach, didn't he, that he'd written in, he, his, he, in his earlier book. Yeah, on. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of richness to Smith. Mm. Um, and, like, for example, he... I'll give you one of my favourite examples. Uh, Smith was against having a, flea, a free-floating rate of interest. Mm. He thought the rate of interest should be controlled by the state. He said you should set the rate of interest... Uh, at a level which means that ordinary people would be willing to pay the the rate you're looking at rather than what he called uh, profligates and projectors. Mm. And because you look back, you go back in, in time and not too far before that, you have the South Sea bubble and you had firms, uh, you know, people being willing to borrow large amounts of money and profiting enormous returns on what was total garbage. Yeah. Um, so he, he said that you, you want to cut out the profligates and projectors and have the money being borrowed uh, at, by people who are actually going to use it for sensible investment. Uh, Bentham was the one who was in favour of totally deregulated financial sector. So you find some, some strength and some uh, realistic elements to Smith that are completely ignored by people who focus just on the whole invisible hand argument. Yeah, well, before he got to the invisible hand, mm-hmm. I mean, he because he was a philosopher before yeah, he was really yeah. an economist, he wrote mm-hmm. The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And I have to confess, that's one book I haven't read. Well, I, neither, neither have I, but <laughs> but I've read books about it. I've, you got, know, a re- I've got to read the I've read much shorter books about the, about the longer yeah. book. But I mean, it was all about uh, universal benevolence, basically, that we all mm-hmm. work for the greater well, good. The, the and this, un- this idea that we are... Uh, you know, the, the you behave like the impartial spectator. Uh, so, for example, if um, uh, I know, for for example, if if somebody if if you saw someone had dropped a wallet on the ground, mm. would you pick that wallet up and give it to uh, t- to the person who dropped it? The answer is yes. Uh, the answer is yes because you look look at it as an impartial spectator. If someone was looking on, watching mm. you, mm. what would they think of you if you went and pocketed that money? And yeah. that impartial spectator is sort of like the you know the tiny voice in your head that's telling mm. you this is how we behave, and that's how the theory of moral philosophy, theory mm. of moral sentiments, yeah, and that is part of humanity. We are, and, and the whole idea of seeing us as being self interested. Rep- Mm. and not giving a damn about the other is something which has been pasted onto Smith um, by people who've never read him. Yeah. And that's one of, I remember having a, an argument as I give, uh, invited to uh, go to a, a talk in Netherlands where I wasn't actually on the stage and uh, there was, it was young members of the rethinking group versus a, a, a sort of stylish but straight neoclassical economist and he said, I'm, I'm a follower of Adam Smith and he made some comment, and I've forgotten what it actually was, unfortunately, but I said from the audience, said, well, I now know that you haven't read him at all. I have certainly read The Wealth of Nations. I said, because what you've said directly contradicts Smith. In what way? So what was he saying? Oh, God, unfortunately, <laughs> I can't remember. Right. But it was it was uh, something, uh, again, about uh, 
being in favour of being a totally deregulated prices. Mm. And one of the Smith's phrases in The Wealth of Nations is to say that businessmen rarely get together except to form a conspiracy against the public. Yeah. So he saw business... Well, business he, and he did recognise that, didn't he? Yeah, the, the, he did the, say... The two types of relationships that exist, which is like the... We have an, e- an equal relationship, which is mm. the ideal situation that we mm. should be in, and then we have this superior, inferior type, yeah. type relationship yeah. where one is more subservient to the other. And, uh, and recognise that we've got to get rid of that... Uh, that privileged position. So actually, he was a bit of a left winger from that in, point. In what, if, if you look at him uh, in, in terms of long term historical context, in some ways he was arguing as part of the Enlightenment, arguing for a market system over the feudal system. Mm. Because with the feudal system, there was a defined rank. Uh, you had to pay feudal taxes if you moved from one feudal estate to another. Uh, all these restrictions on commerce were things that the merchants were against. And a major argument made back by the feudal. Uh, powers, powers that be, was that if we don't have the order of the feudal system, we'll have anarchy. Yeah. And what Smith was saying, no, we'll have this community building out instead, yeah. and people will get ahead to the extent to which they contribute to the community. And partly that's through making a profit, selling commodities well, and so on. But, and, but that sort of get, then touches on his uh, a little bit of his ideas of the free market, doesn't mm. it? Because he, he talks about uh, the alternative is that uh, either you have the, the, uh, the system where you have a control by somebody who owns the money or mm. you have control from, from the government. And then you have what he calls the, 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 the man of system who believes that he understands what you need better than you do. Mm. So he sort of like, uh, you know, controls the pieces on a chessboard, mm. whereas in, in fact those pieces on the chessboard are, are capable of their own free thought mm. and you can't predict their behaviour. But, but this, is, this is where you've got to see him in context because if you put him in the context of the 21st century or the 20th century, mm. then you see him as a libertarian. Mm. Uh, but if you put him in the context of the, the transition from a feudal system to a capitalist system, he was in favour of reducing the imposts of the feudal system, which are far greater than anything we have to put up with today. Today, yeah. I mean, yeah. you've, you've got you know appalling behaviour towards the Windrush and, and and other you know appalling elements of behaviour like yeah. that. But in general, most of us are insulated from. Yeah. We can all vote for politicians, yeah. for example. It's yeah. not uh, the privileged few, and uh, and yeah, and yeah, and and we have some freedom from arbitrary arrest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, mm. Uh, those those freedoms didn't exist back in those days, and and like you know in in the early in the, in the period when the feudal system was dominant, which is up to about 1600, 1650, that sort of period from to, 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 to thousand to sixty, so six hundred years or so, then there were tax collectors for every feudal estate, mm. and these feudal estates could produce a large amount of what they needed, but never at the total amount of what they needed. Um, so they had to import from elsewhere, and the merchants would be doing the trade between the two places, being hit with taxes, so, just to bring and 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 that and the taxes were essentially arbitrary. So a lot of the development of English law was to prevent the arbitrary imposition of taxes by those feudal estates, and this is part of the whole transition from feudalism to capitalism. And Smith was a champion of that transition. So how much of Smith's thinking of the free market would would apply if we had that ideal scenario where everyone was you know everyone was equal? I mean, it is part of the problem. But then he'd be definitely a left-winger. He'd be saying you've got to restrain that because that can lead to destructive behaviours. It can lead to accumulation of power. And, uh, you know, rather than seeing the neoclassical vision of perfect competition, he would – he's – he was certainly saying, uh, but he, did he talk about? The, but did he talk about if we started as a series of equals? Did he talk in his models about how 
we would accumulate power? He, he was no. He was saying the free market gives freedom of choice. And but then all- again, the conspiracy against the public mm. argument, the business people. Uh, and, and fundamentally, uh, he, he, he was part of the – the I the what you can call an objective theory of value. This is why I, I think I should have remembered with this particular neoclassical claiming that um, his his work extended Smith. I said your theory of value is a subjective theory of value, mm. utility maximization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Smith was a direct critic of that. He literally rejected the argument that you can have a subjective theory of value. He said price is set by the objective cost of production. Um, he couldn't work out where surplus came from. He couldn't work out where profit came from. And that's what's in that framework. Marx actually worked at, worked out the logic of how he could get a profit out of that situation. But he was fundamentally somebody who said that workers are paid their, their means of subsistence. And uh, the danger was workers could be conspired against by the, by the manufacturers to push their wages down. Um, and he gave examples of child labour as well. I mean, hmm. uh, it's quite intriguing to read Smith and see the extent to which things we wouldn't accept now were accepted back then. Uh, he, gave, he gave the example, for example, that the chi- he said a child invented the system, uh, not the governor system on a on a steam a steam boiler, but the pressure sensitising system. Because what would happen in the old factories before we had the, the Smith's governor being invented, taking away the labour involved, that a child would be hired to hold on to a release valve next to one of these steam boilers and when the boiler started to shake too much the child would pull the cable down to let the gas out that was their job and then some enterprising child worked out that they tied the string around the boiler this boiler would expand pull on the string and open the valve wow. and he made they gave an example of a child who wanted to go and play with his work with his, child, his, his, his uh, kids his mates yeah. uh, being the source of an innovation <laughs> I now, love that story. That's literally in the wealth of nations. So, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, you, you, you read that in his context today, you'd be saying the bastards in favour of child labour. Mm. Go back to those days. Yeah, and where that was it was an accepted norm. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. So, so unless you read these things in context, you're going to distort them. But he, he did, I mean, he was in favour of uh, of levelling leveling the playing field, obviously, given the, the times that he was living in. He spent mm. quite a bit of time in Paris when he was quite young. He was A lot of the stuff he wrote, he was still very... Very young, wasn't he? He wasn't. I mean, you know, yeah, he, he was, was actually. He took. I've forgotten which particular royal he took across to France, but yeah. he took across a, a, a son of an earl, I think. And he and, met uh, Francois Quesnay, and that's why I'm critical of him because right. Canet and the physiocrats were all uh, were saying that you know wealth comes from land. Okay, mm. and what they really were saying, the, the, the word energy was not invented till 1809 by some English polymath. Right. So they didn't use the word energy because the word literature didn't exist. What they're fundamentally saying, we're getting a free gift from the sun. That's where the world wealth comes from. And then you distribute that wealth between the, the farmers, which we call the productive class, the manufacturing workers, which you call the sterile class, and then the proprietors taking the surplus on top of that. And he actually had a multiplier table that showed that if you could reduce the cost of, uh, of food production, uh, by, say, 10%, then you can increase GDP by 30% through a, a multiplier process. So with Canet, we had the real beginnings of macroeconomics long before Keynes. And one of my, my, my probably my favourite economist um, of recent years is John Blatt, who's a professor of applied mathematics, a, a book I have linked on my website, by the way. If you want to go find it, go to profstevekeen.com. Um, and you'll find that book there and uh, out of print. But he argues, and I agree with him, that in terms of uh, a towering contribution before anybody else 
came up with the, these concept was Kinney as the most innovative economist of all time. And then what Smith did was take uh, just the microeconomic perspective. So the emphasis on microeconomics and mm. the, all that stuff, that I blame on Smith. We lost the macroeconomic impetus that came out of Kinney. Well, Kinney was, uh, was another one for le- leveling the playing field. Mm. It was a bit like Marx, thought it could only happen through evolution, didn't he? Whereas... You know, we had uh, Smith, well, was saying, was Smith was saying, no, don't worry about it. It will all well, Martin, sort no, itself up from the ground up, Kinney, Kinney was the king's physician, physician mm. and that meant he had a lot of time in his hands because the king was fairly healthy most of the time. <laughs> uh, and what, what he was looking at was all – we're actually talking about more about Kinney than Smith, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Kinney was writing at the time of the beginnings of autopsies, and so you're opening up bodies mm. rather than regarding them as sacrosanct and then finding all these tubes – and then the vision of circulation came out of that, and mm. that was the idea of the body as, as a system, therefore the economy as a system, uh, the tubes feeding one place, feed, feeding another, the, the idea of, uh, of, of feedback effects. Mm-hmm. All that was in Kinney. And now Smith didn't understand it. Right. So um, Smith gave us a, a lot a of A level stuff. of complexity he hadn't uh, Yeah, and Kinney was ahead of him and so was Cantillon. But Kinney was saying, well, we need to change land ownership, we need to change inheritance laws. I mean, we talk about that now mm. still, don't we? Yeah. Uh, but and, he, that, he, and that's what he was saying. That, that's what's got to change. Well, he actually wanted mm. to reduce the tax, the impact of the tax collectors because he could see that the tax collectors uh, were uh, ripping the surplus off rather than letting it run through the economy itself, was going straight to the hands of the tax collectors and also partly to the royals on whose, whose behalf they were collecting. And you weren't getting it feeding through the rest of the economy and calling the multiplier effects that could come out of that money being spent. Mm. So he was trying to persuade the king to reduce the impact of the tax collectors. Now, of course, that would have been a good idea for the king to follow because sometime shortly afterwards we had one of them being beheaded, the terror. Okay, um, So... Uh, but what actually happened instead was because they were seen as a challenge to the power of the tax collectors fundamentally, uh, Kinney and the physiocrats were eliminated, some directly and others just basically ignored. But um, So we we had a great start and then along comes Smith. We get the labour, the vision of labour being seen as the source of increase in wealth rather than use of energy. Mm. So we, got, we had 200 years of fighting over the labour theory of value versus subjective theories of value. It's all been a waste of time. Not all, but a lot of it's been a waste of time. But some of it, but I mean, okay, the importance of it perhaps uh, is, is being overplayed. But his idea... Uh, I mean, what he described with the pin factory is the is the model that Henry Ford followed in the in car production, isn't it? Where we, you know, we 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 all do specialist tasks, and that increases productivity. Yeah, I mean, and and, and the, the production line, the the role of manufacturing in, in the production line. Mm. This is where, again, partially uh, having a more limited economy sometimes give you greater vision because you see something with much greater clarity. So France was overwhelmingly an agricultural society. Uh, at the time that Canet and uh, Cantillon and co were writing. And you could see, if you plant one seed, you get a plant back which has got 10,000 seeds on it. And it was no no work of the, the farmer. All you're doing is keeping the birds away. Mm. Uh, you know, it was literally the land gave you the gift of productivity. Whereas what we from Smith, having manufacturing at the same time, he wasn't aware that what they were putting into the furnaces was actually effectively solidified solar energy, coal. Mm. Okay. Um, so that the, the fact that you had industry as well to account for, uh, the, the, the physiocratic argument was it's just sterile. They don't produce any extra value there. Now, in fact, in both cases, you produce, what you're doing is you're taking energy and turning it to useful work. 
both in agriculture and in manufacturing. In agriculture, you're directly using the sunlight. In that, in, in manufacturing, mm. predominantly at those times, you were using you know, solar energy that fell on the planet 70 million years ago in the form of coal. Um, so if we'd started from the physiocratic objective, we mm. would have had a more realistic model of economics than we got by starting with Smith. Yeah. Because he was focused in purely on labour. Yeah, in yeah, and and like even in terms of talking about labour, we talk about labour, not machinery. Yeah, I mean, if you think about uh, that argument about the specialisation, to be specialised as a worker, you've got to have specialised tools. Mm. Okay, uh, and like again, the spinning jenny is the classic il- illustration there. Uh, and the spinning jenny meant that what used to be the job of one person turning one wheel became one person turning six wheels. That meant that that. The momentum that that person could put in could produce six lines of thread at once rather than one. And the reason that occurred in Scotland rather than occurring in France at the time was that the wages in Scotland were so much higher that it made it worth your while to find a way to displace six late workers with one, even with the cost of designing the, the spinning jenny. Whereas if you tried the same thing in France, you would have lost money. Yeah. It was cheaper to hire the workers in France. So to some extent, the innovation came out of higher wages. Well, and that gets onto the, onto the question of free trade as well, doesn't it? You know, his, his point that you should never uh, attempt to buy uh, something that's cheaper. You know, you should never t- attempt to make something that's cheaper to buy elsewhere. You know, he was almost like, you know, Guardian type uh, approach to, to international trade. That but, you should- but again, leaving out the role of machinery and all that. Yeah. And that's, what, that's what I see as the major weakness in Ricardo's logic. So what about what about the uh, the invisible hand then? Because I mean that you can understand how he came about that when you look at you know his earlier work where it was all about the the philosophy that we you know this this idea of the the spectator and that we all live happily as a society mm. because we get on well because we have to and we behave now, as we'd expect others to behave. No, I then, now I now know you haven't read that part of the Wealth of Nations. No, 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 no. But I mean, no, no, yeah. true, but you know but, why? Because you know what it was actually about. No. It was, it was about, it was an argument about uh, why English manufacturers would not move offshore. Which was? And, which was that they had a, a desire to stay in their own culture, their own society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they led, led by an invisible hand, but it was nothing to do with the market. Oh, right. Okay. The, the phrase was about the invisible hand in that sense was the hand that holds you in your own country. Uh-huh. Okay, so uh, he used. Well, invis- this is misinterpreted. By totally him. misinterpreted. I mean, right. he led as if by an invisible hand to do something which was no part of the original intention. Right. Okay, and it was wasn't about them um, specialising or producing something at a lower price than they intended, and so on, which is the way it's interpreted in a modern sense. It was literally about why he thought if you cut, if you reduce, reduce tariff barriers, you wouldn't have manufacturing moving offshore to Portugal. Right. Okay. okay. So, so the invisible he, he would be very pleased then to know that the invisible hand is alive and well in twenty uh, first century Britain, wouldn't he? You know? Well, the invisible hand's pushed all the stuff onto the cheapest la- cheapest wage labour and the, yeah, somewhere else the rest of the planet. Bring, but everyone wants to bring it back now. Everyone wants the invisible hand back again. Yeah. Okay, well, irrespective of what it's called, but his early philosophy was that we all uh, operate very happily as a society because we behave as we'd like others to behave around us. Yeah, and it's a moral and, sentiment concept of it. Yeah. And, and and similarly, therefore, that's the way the free market should operate. That you know the idea. That you know the the butcher is uh, is is not doing anything out of uh, not doing it just to make money. He's well, he is doing it to make money, mm-hmm. but the fact he's doing it to make money uh, is because people want it, and so that's how free trade operates. That's how you know economies self organise, which is better than being organised from above. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it, it, there's a combination of the two in Smith. I mean, he's he's pushing more towards saying self-interest is what motivates your behaviour. Yeah. But he sees self-interest as being tom- tempered 
by the moral sentiments that you wish to be part of a, a community and you are not going to try to you know, drive somebody to starvation wages. Um, you're not going to take your production offshore and undermine your own industry mm. to take advantage of cheap wages no overseas. No one would ever do any of those things, Which would they? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so he was an idealist then, really, wasn't he? This, you know, he had this well, idea fact, of natural liberty that one, we were all one, going to behave in. in yeah, one, in, one of the great problems with Smith is he ordered his papers to be destroyed on his death. So all the rough notes and mm. stuff like that, where you might get a better idea of how he thinks, were destroyed deliberately. Uh, and and like I've, in terms of reading Marx, for example, the most important book I read on Marx is called The Grundrisse. And that's, that stands for rough draft, apparently, in German. Uh, it's the rough draft of capital. And in that, that's where Marx worked out the, the part of his logic that I proved undermines the labor theory of value. Um, so... There's, there's a capacity with Marx to say, well, here's the rough stuff before it was all processed for publication, which shows what his actual thought processes were. We don't have that with Smith. Smith mm. deliberately destroyed it. So there are some things I'd like to know about why, um, you know, why the argument about the conspiracy against the public was put forward. Um, you know, was there a personal experience there? Did he actually visit the pin factory? This sort of stuff. I'd, I'd like to know that. And unfortunately, because he had his notes destroyed, we don't know the answer to those questions. Mm. But was he too idealist? So this idea that, um, you know, that we that we behave that I mean, he, he it was the foundation, wasn't it, for. This is how things find the their, sort of libertarian. How find their le- and yeah. this is how things find their level. You know, prices yeah. should be determined by, for example, the butcher. If he sells too much meat, then people are not going to, you know, demand. He demands got to meet supply. You know, the whole argument that you know at, at the local level, prices are always going to find find their level at a local level. And then his idealist his idealist approach was to say. Well, that just multiplies up, you know. So that whole it, it, it was another case, really, wasn't it? Microeconomics becomes micro. Yeah, micro. Unfortunately, the micro trend, which has dominated economics ever since, mm. uh, and that's one of the great weaknesses of economics. So, yeah. in that sense, we're going from Kinney to Smith. We went backwards. Yeah. And what if so? Let, let's go back. Let's go back and start on the on the shoulders of Cantillon and Kinney rather than Smith. He should have spent more time in Paris. In other words, absolutely, or you should have paid more attention, mm. maybe. Uh, and he lived at a time when the ruling aristocracy really was having a great deal of influence. I'm just wondering whether they actually did anything to, to try. I mean, he, apart from saying that you know the, the, that they should have less influence, mm. he didn't really have any answers to it, did he? No, he didn't talk a great deal about the state. Mm. But but a large part of what he was saying was liberating people uh, people's behaviour from state controls. At the same time, and when you look what feudal controls implied, uh, it was even though the, the feudal system had been restrained over time by the development of the English law, uh, uh, there was still a degree of arbitrariness to what the feudal system could do, which we would not tolerate today. And perhaps the fact that he didn't directly address that in the in the, work, the Wealth of Nations may be because it was dangerous to do so. You had to do it in an implicit sense rather than explicit. Again. Uh, one thing I'll have to do is read the moral theory of moral philosophy. Mm. But another thing that I can't do is work out, would you find in his raw notes railings against the impact of the feudal system and the impact of the king and so on uh, in a way which would be dangerous for your health if it was published? And that may be, yeah. That may be, you know, maybe that's why it had to be taken away. Yeah, yeah maybe it's why he destroyed yeah. it. Let me give you an Adam Smith quote, which makes you wonder whether he was uh, an idealist. Little yeah. else is requisite to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence, but peace, easy taxes, 
and a tolerable administration of justice, all the rest being brought about by the natural course of things. In other words, that if we leave you alone, mm. you're just going to happily all get on and create wealth amongst yourselves. That's pretty much what he's saying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in, in that sense, it's the, you know, the capitalism, I, I've always said, is the second most innovative social system we've ever had. The most innovative being the original hunter and gathering society, where that's where a huge part of our innovations began from. Um, and in that society, you got kudos for your contributions to the, to, to the community. And capitalism gives you kudos for those contributions as well as money. Mm. Uh, and the, the money can be a, a, a spur to enormous levels of innovation, which we know did not happen in the Soviet system. But it can be distorted as well, which it yeah. seems like he didn't pay a great deal of attention. So here he is saying, you know, if you just left alone, the natural course of things, but you'll he look was after also yourself. In this, is a, of- this is the time of the, you know, the, we had the uh, the East India Company, yeah, which was okay. not about free trade at all. I mean, it was a monopoly that went for a couple of hundred years. And uh uh, you know, dominated most of the world's international trade. Yeah, and uh, and undermined, it, it turned India from a from an urban society into a into a uh, impoverished rural one too. Mm. When they opened up free trade, so uh, India, when 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 the East India Company first took over India, they banned the export of Indian cotton to. Uh, UK because it would undermine their manufacturing completely, and over the 30-year period of the industrialisation of of, of 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 clothing manufacturing, starting with the spinning jenny and the steam engine, uh, and the building of the first factories, then they opened up trade back to India, selling English cottons which were then much cheaper than the Indians could manage, rougher quality of course, but much cheaper, and that turned India from a country which had 70% of its population in the cities to 70% rural, mm. massive famines. So none of that was discussed by Smith. So, yeah, there are except large in those notes, perhaps, which have which uh, we don't know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was concerned about the the plight of the the working poor, wasn't yeah. he? And, yeah. and, and in the end, he gave all his money away to to the poor. Um, but he saw the you know the way of solving that was without government intervention. I mean, he was a real firm believer, wasn't he? That uh, you know, not the invisible hand, but the but the, the but the workings of the economy mm. are going to be uh, how we solve that problem. Yeah. The and yeah, so how did he get that so wrong? Well, I mean, he got it right in the sense of a transition from feudal labour to to employed labour in factories. What he didn't get right, and this is actually quite amusing, was the level of pollution and damage and destruction that was done by those early industries. Mm. So uh, even though he had a completely contradictory philosophy, Jean-Baptiste Say, who was the, the original proto-neoclassical along with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, Corneau from France, uh, he did a pilgrimage once to go and go and pay homage to Adam Smith's birthplace. And he only got halfway through England and was so horrified by the industrial pollution that he turned <laughs> back and went back home again. So, so I'm not going to read that book again. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah interesting stuff. Mm. All right. And again, getting to the point that he was just concerned about labour yeah. and none of the uh, externalities. Yeah, like and, the, and, and they were dramatic because you know, the level of the, the, the dark satanic mills uh, I forgotten. I think it may have been who maybe was it Coleridge who gave that expression. Yeah, yeah. But that was the nature of the world. It was the transformation that occurred as you had the industrialization by the exploitation of coal, beginning with James Watt. So, is there anything we can take from the wealth of nations? Um, I, the, Useful. I, I, I mean, I I end up taking only a small amount from the classical school in general, and most of it comes out of Marx without the labor theory of value. 
So I think a lot of damage was done by the labor theory of value and the neoclassical school was a reaction to that. We wouldn't necessarily have neoclassical theory developing in the first place if we hadn't had the labor theory of value developed beforehand because that was then when you when you got past the feudal period and you now had capitalist versus worker as the major class struggle. Um, then with because Marx turned the classical school as a from a defender of capitalism against feudalism to a attacking capitalism in favor of socialism, uh, then you had the neoclassical school coming out of all that. Now, if we hadn't started the diversion with Smith, we might never have got to that insane theory I wonder, taking so Smith, over. I suspect, would be horrified then to see the outcome of his work. I think so. And, and how it's I being think used. So. Yeah. 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 Mm. All right. Well, there we are. Uh, another book not to read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> read, read carefully, read in context, and, and read Canet and Catalan beforehand right. and put it and put it together. You, you have to know your history of economic thought because it's a pretty shoddy history. Yeah. All right, very good. Thank you, Steve. Welcome. And next time, back to talking about the coronavirus. And there's a lot of talk right now about getting back to work. If we do get back to work, uh, will things be normal ever again? What will the new normal be? post-COVID-19, or maybe living with COVID-19. That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.